Welcome to the Space Cave. Let's talk about beer. Lots of mouth noises. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get, the, you get those little tinklies. <laughs> Do people ever get that from beer? Uh, well, I guess if you drink enough, yeah. <laughs> you, you start to feel it, and then you lose it all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right, like yeah. One then brief you're just moment out. where it's perfect and... Then it all goes downhill, probably. So we're in the belly of the beast. Well, not really. We're in the back of the belly of the, the beast of at the belly Iron of Triangle. The beast, yeah, <laughs> this is where all the secret behind-the-scenes stuff goes on. All yeah, the spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. Tracking down missing packages or parts within the enzymes. That was a, the big uh, track down today. That was the that was the the mystery that we solved. Nice, and that didn't case sk- of the missing enzymes. And no production got delayed in that, so that was just to be ready for what when tomorrow. When do you add enzymes? Uh, for Thursday, we're going to be brewing, um, we're going to be putting in, um, uh, another batch of our, our flagship lager. Uh, so we'll use a little bit of, uh, enzyme to help us save some time lottering. Cool. And that's this that I'm holding right here. Uh, no, that's actually, uh, our specialty lager that we did, um, for October. It's a Dortmunder export style lager. Dortmunder export style. What does that mean? It's a, um, it's kind of a very regionally specific uh, type of lager. It's kind of between um, a Hellas and um, kind of the, I would say, yeah, I'd say I would put it between like Hellas and like a, like a real like Munich Oktoberfest style. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, uh, it's definitely a lot more uh, malty and has a lot more kind of that Vienna Munich character than like, you know, than a Pilsner would, but it's not full on like malt bomb like, like those tend to be. So it's kind of somewhere in the middle. I, I, man, I don't have the language usually to describe it, but if I were going to like get a recording and be like, how does this taste to you? I would have just played that. <laughs> I feel like it, the mi- like the middle thing you referenced made a lot of sense. Not too crisp, not too sharper like where you get that heavy like ugh, my mouth feels all malty yeah it's got um this one it has a uh, a pilsner base and then 15 percent each of uh vienna and light munich malt in it okay and then to back up a bit josiah blumquist yes yes head me. brewmaster here yep at iron triangle at the iron triangle in downtown yeah. la and then kale and i don't i'm miss, forgetting your last name bittner kale bittner and then this you run the operation Yes. This is your baby? Uh, it is not my baby, but I treat it like it. Oh, cool. And how long has that been going on? Uh, Iron Triangle's been in operation for three years now, mm-hmm. uh, and I've been here since before day one. Awesome. Kale's employee number one. Uh, cool. He, he got the first paycheck. Mm-hmm. Where does the passion for beer come I went to school in Fort Collins, so like that, that story of him like riding his bike and visiting all the breweries and getting familiar with it and then starting to brew in like a basement and friends delivering, you know, cases and they couldn't, you know, get rid of it enough. So he had to start charging. It's a very romantic story. I don't know how true it is, but like, where does that similar to you guys just got real into beer or saw it as a lucrative um, endeavor? Where's my, uh, my story started with uh, just trying to get drunk in high school actually. <laughs> um, and making your own in high school. Yeah. The, uh, the first thing uh, that I ever made my, uh, had a friend that showed me the, trick of taking some apple juice and putting some Fleischmann's bread yeast into it and letting it sit in your closet for a week and then drinking it, uh, <laughs> which when you would drink it, it would make you drunk, which when you're in high school is pretty cool, uh, although it tasted terrible. Yeah, that sounds odd. But I mean, most kids are trying to make fake IDs. You're like, let's just go right to the source. Let's make some booze, some well, this toilet was, this was uh This was quite some time ago when... Um, we didn't quite have the the technical wherewithal to make fake IDs, and mm-hmm. you know, playing Hey Mister was always such a real bummer. <laughs> um, and so I got on the internet and did some googling around to figure out how to make my shitty prison hooch taste better. Uh, and I found that you didn't need to be 21 years old to order uh, stuff to make beer. Really? So I got my first homebrew kit, my bucket, my extract, and my grains, and all that. And I made my first batch of beer when I was about uh, 18 years old. What did your parents think? 
Uh, that at that point, that was kind of the least of the problems that we were having. So it wasn't mm-hmm. that big of a deal. They just like you having a hobby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever. You know, it's like it's, I'm spending more time at home and not getting in trouble. And I'm just making beer in the bathtub and drinking at home with my friends. So it's not that big of a nice. deal. Uh, the lawyer needs to step in. Iron Triangle does not condone the drinking, uh, <laughs> underage drinking. <laughs> yeah, any and all comments are not representative. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, then from uh, from there, you know, like, you know, my first batch turned out like surprisingly really good. Um, you know, it was, it was a really it was a great time to, to jump into into home brewing, like kind of in those um, like the late two thousands, mid to late two thousands. Um, and this is like. Or mid to late, I guess YouTube's I guess getting off the like ground. Maybe like early to mid, it would be. But it's more books at that point. You can't just pop on YouTube yeah, and see that's everything. The thing. There wasn't like you know the the amount of information that we have now. But that's when like in really good ingredients starting be started to be readily available. Mm-hmm. And you know I ordered a bunch of stuff from like you know the you know the big online shops you know like Midwest and More Beer and all those stuff and mm-hmm. eventually found my way to um, the local homebrew shop to me which was the home beer wine cheese making shop in Woodland Hills uh, which is a legendary place it's been around forever uh, it's been open selling stuff to make wine and beer before it was even legal before you know in the Carter Carter days oh wow. Um, and the same owners ran it forever. Um, you know, the building it's in right now, they've been in for 25 years and they were, you know, across the street for 20 years before that. Mm-hmm. I like the, the culture there with like, when I go into the homebrew shops, there's certainly like the old guys that like know everything and can't wait to tell you everything they know. But like when you come in there, is there sort of like a, is it everyone trying to one up each other? Or is there just an appreciation of like, Hey, you make beer. Great. Uh, usually I would say the average homebrew experience, um, local homebrew shop experience ranges from pretty awesome to kind of not awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times you'll find people that are grumpy that are sort of willing to help you. Yeah. That was, was my experience in every homebrew shop that wasn't the home beer wine cheese shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I eventually ended up uh, working there myself. And oh. so I really, really enjoyed my time working there because, you know, I was one of those people that's like, you know, it's a, it's a fun hobby store, you know, people are wanting to come there and it should be a fun experience. So that was, that was great. I really enjoyed my time there a lot. Cause you can't really, I mean, maybe there are now you could go to like a technical school and learn beer brewing or fermentation stuff, but like you kind of have to just, you know, it's like one of those things where someone uh, learns computer science and they just learn the basics on their own and then become a ma- master hacker. Beer brewing is kind of like, how did you, did you hire him? Gail? Um, yeah, pretty much. Um, so, so what's the resume? Me and Josiah, like? I met Josiah when he was working at the home beer, wine, and cheese shop. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, had, we were both uh, uh, members of the Maltos Falcons Homebrewing Club at that point. <laughs> the Maltos, that's that's fun. How'd you? How do you? You get like a patch? I mean, is there a camaraderie? You get a, a card carrying member. Nice. You know? Yeah, there's. You know, they have they have swag available. And you show <laughs> the club, meaning like you show up once a month and like present what you've recently you know yeah the, the falcons meetings were are pretty pretty great and well regimented and programmed for a homebrew club meeting there will be um the beginning of the meeting uh you know drew beecham which i'm sure almost everybody has heard of at some point in the homebrewing community uh you know he's been in our club forever he's a fantastic wealth of knowledge just really really smart guy and he'll do uh some very you know kind of interesting well thought out presentation of commercial beers to taste mm-hmm. um then after that, they'll uh, they'll get lunch served, and then they'll start rolling through all the homebrew. And so, you know, they'll try to you know their best to group all these all these strange homebrews in an order that sort of makes sense. And then we all go through, and you know, stand up in front of the room, taste uh, everybody, taste your beer. You get to explain it, and people get to give feedback and ask questions. And it's you know, I brewed on my own for probably four or five years before I got involved with a homebrew club, and that was probably one of the best things that accelerated the quality of my homebrew uh, the most was getting involved with the club. Mm-hmm. Because it challenged you? Like, I've heard other people go the other way where they're like, ah, they were too nitpicky. They'd find things they didn't like in my beer, and it kind of bugged me, so they, they left. But we, did you like that when people were like, eh? Oh, I love that. The, um, the kind of one of the most difficult things for a homebrewer is to assess the quality of your own beer, especially if you haven't, you know, had some sort of formal training. I would say it's really difficult to really critically evaluate beer because there's a big difference between drinking a beer to drink it and then drinking a beer and then picking apart every little part of it in a very technical way. Um, 
you know, most people, the only feedback they get is from their friends who are getting all this free beer. Of course, yeah. it's going to be great because it's free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was, that was, you know, a huge, uh, a huge asset, I think, of, you know, there's a lot of really smart people in that club that have been doing it for a really long time. They know a lot, and you can get some really, really good high-quality feedback. Mm-hmm. I, I would also add that most people, um, this is one of the first times they've had a project that you, you know, put potentially like eight hour, 10 hour brew day in, then you had to take care of it for a couple of weeks while it ferments and then you bottle it and people like me go really all out and you make fancy labels for everything. Mm-hmm. And, and you put a lot of yourself into this, this product and not everybody is ready to take criticism on that. Um, and that's, that's odd. People aren't all built for that for one. And most people's jobs don't set themselves up to become used to that. Well, how did you handle it when you, I mean, especially with labels and stuff like you show up sort of like, I'm ready. Hey, check it out. This is my pet, my baby. I came to Los Angeles uh, to work in the film industry. So Mm -hmm. I did a lot of screenwriting and pitching. So for me, taking criticism like, oh, you homebrewers are so nice. Like (laughs) other people have torn my soul out before and spat on it. Like you're just like, oh, it's pretty good. Maybe you should try this next time. Yeah. Um, So for me, it wasn't that bad. But I could see how a lot of people like first time taking criticism, it's it Mm -hmm. can be hard. Yeah. The um, you can kind of you know the more the more people you meet, the the better you get at telling on you know which people want good critical feedback in which people want just want you to tell them that it tastes good Mm -hmm. the truth is a blunt instrument that very few people actually want to hear right yeah i'm definitely one of those people like you know i you know respond much better to criticism than i do praise because you know i'm trying to make you know it was always kind of my intent like when once i really got bitten by the bug um you know i wanted to make you know world-class beer i wanted to you know just really really go for it and you know i felt like you know people just telling me that the beer was great all the time was not how I was going to get there. And, you know, the, the training that I did with the Maltose Falcons, you know, for uh, BJCP mm-hmm. uh, judging was huge. That was probably the most instrumental thing in improving the, the, the quality of beers, that, that skill of being able to critically taste and evaluate and trying to remove your, you know, your prejudices and your emotions as much as possible. <laughs> Does your palate have to sign off on it? Meaning if you get notes and say you get second or third and you go taste the winning one, do you typically go, ah, damn it, this is, this is perfect? Um, the, that can be like kind of a very emotional experience for a lot of, a lot of brewers, you know, not, not winning in competitions or, you know, you know, getting, getting edged out by, by other beers. But, you know, I've judged a lot of homebrew competitions. I've watched, you know, uh, you know, I've judged best of show rounds. I've watched my beers get judged at best of show rounds. And, you know, if you make it, you know, to any sort of medal winning thing, you should feel really good. Uh, but if you don't, that doesn't necessarily mean your beer was bad. Um, it's a really, really subjective thing that we're trying to do in a quasi-scientific fashion but at the end of the day we're still just humans and especially with homebrew competitions um you know they're still just regular people they're not they're not in you know industry professionals right so you know everybody's still kind of at some level susceptible to their own personal preferences and you know just as 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 tasters we're all very different uh so we can all taste the same beer and we might notice drastically different things Mm -hmm. and so you know really it's uh it's kind of a lot of it is chance you know where you you know how much beer the judge had you know where you are in the flight and things like that so you know try to try to tell people not to get too discouraged by not winning at at competitions it doesn't you know doesn't mean that you're that you're not doing a good job you know you might have some things you might be able to do better but you know you could have perfect beer and it still might not win just on chance yeah but i guess winning or you know when you have a big facility like this and you start getting into that game where like, we're going to commercialize it and try to like capitalize on what we've made. And maybe this is a a wild analogy, but you know, thinking of like a classically trained musician and then knowing, you know, critical ear to be able to hear like that, that's just off a little bit as opposed to like, I, yeah, I'm trained that way. But in reality, if I can just make pop music, it doesn't have to be that perfect. Pop music makes a lot of money. So as, and that's what I was going to ask. Like when you get into this, if you have a beer that you love, you think it's great. You're like, it didn't win at competitions, but we love it. People 
drink the hell out of it. Who cares what how it did in the competition? Is that kind of what keeps the wheels turning and the bills paid? Yeah, just through uh, you know the amount of work I've done in you know homebrew competitions, I've kind of learned to remove that you know that need to win a medal to 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 make yourself feel like you're a, you're a pretty brewer. <laughs> to, to that too, like f- for instance, we'll probably get to it a little later, but you know some of our beers don't fall neatly into beer categories mm-hmm. uh, beer competition is about how well your beer stacks up to this very specific set of guidelines and if yeah. your beer is not within it it could be an awesome beer it just yeah. doesn't fit somebody's arbitrary style guidelines right so you might not win with that and also the judges aren't always the best at at you know they they a lot of times don't read the style guidelines mm-hmm. they just go about what they think the style should be yeah and so it's again it's just like it's the the human element is inescapable you know one day we'll get uh you know beer robot that'll just like <laughs> you know you feed it beers it'll just shoot metals out of it yeah know, in scientifically perfect fashion <laughs> well like you know dog shows where they have like best in show for this and the breeds are still these pillars these kind of tent poles but then, you know, people have so many different mutts now. You're like, look how pretty that dog is. Look how good it is at whatever its skill is. But it's not going to win any of those because it's, it's a mix. Is that kind of with beer, I mean, too? That dog that rides a skateboard is awesome. He doesn't need to win any competition. Right, yeah, yeah. He's got two million views on YouTube. You tell me <laughs> a best of show dog that has that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's a good dog right there. Yeah, yeah. Everyone <laughs> agree that's a good dog. <laughs> and you can have your beers that are the same way, like, you know, maybe we didn't win a competition, but I have a lot of people who really love it. And mm-hmm. It sells well, and you know, the metal might not push it over the edge. It might not take it to the mainstream. Not most consumers don't care about metals. They care about what they like, and yeah, that's the most important thing. That's that's the ultimate judge is the mass public. Well, I feel, I feel like I can speak very confidently as the mass public. Where like my palate is. I can taste, but I don't think I could come in and, ah, it's missing this, or this enzyme didn't kick, or the sugars were late, or any of that stuff. But like when you said the first beer we're going to try was a lager, my initial reaction was like, I don't typically love lagers. I, I never order them. I, I just think of like Budweiser, just this kind of middle kind of, nah, that's beer. That's sort of what, if you went into like a bar in a movie and they said, give me a beer, they just slide that. Over. But this has like a bunch of stuff going on. It feels very bright, very like crisp, you know, it hits your your mouth and it's kind of like alive and awake as opposed to like, nah, I feel all chalky now. Yeah. That's, um, you know, uh, one of the things that we're making a big, uh, push with our beers, uh, here now is we're trying to bring around like the resurgence of lager as, you know, a really worthwhile, uh, segment of beers because, you know, my kind of personal brewing philosophy is, you know, the way, the way that I like brewing and drinking beers is having, you know, a re- like really good technically solid beer with enough flavor and the correct balance and if you hit all that stuff right you can have you know what m- might you know be misconstrued as a very boring beer something like you know a pilsner mm-hmm. um but a pilsner when it's done really right with you know the right water you know ph and all that stuff it kind of you know when you get every little tiny technical aspect of the beer just right you hit this magic sort of thing i kind of I like comparing it to the McDonald's French fry, mm-hmm. where, you know, McDonald's, they make these French fries that everybody loves because they hit that perfect, you know, ratio of like fat, salt, and yeah, the bliss point. or whatever that yeah. the hell they put in it, you know. Um, but, you know, nobody that, you know, almost nobody that, you know, buys McDonald's French fries and loves them can tell you why they're so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just are. Yeah. And, you know, my, my personal test for the quality of a beer is the two pint test. So drink an entire pint of it. And if you're, you know, if you're ready for another one right after, that's what a good beer is. Nice. I like that. I like when you go to one of those, you know, like this, you know, you have a tasting area here up front and, you know, when you go in with the idea of like, I want to have three or four different types. And then you have one, you're like, I think I want to, I don't want to risk it. I want to just stick with this. Sometimes I feel kind of boring, but I also look at it as more of like a, they did it. They nailed it. They made something so good. I want to try a little more of it. Well, I think one of our guiding principles, I think that the two pint rule, but kind of in similar to that is the, um, and a lot of people's favorite beer by the ounce is not their favorite beer by the pint. Mm-hmm. Like that crazy 
barrel-aged, sour, spam beer. You're like, man, this was nuts. I had two sips. And you're like, sit down and have two pints of that. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And maybe this lager isn't the most memorable beer that you ever have in your life, but you sat down and had a bunch of it. Yeah. And if you sat down and actually thought about it, you could dissect about why it's good. Or you could not think about it and just have a bunch of beers with your buddies, and it's also good. Yeah. The weird sour whatever beer, like, you have to talk about it. <laughs> and, and you don't really want it much more than just a sip. Yeah, I fully agree. They, uh, the um, Belching Beaver makes this peanut butter milk stout, and three or four sips, phenomenal. And then if you have more than a pint, it's like you ate a couple candy bars or something. Yeah, it's definitely, it like, uh, that beer is, like, max of a pint yeah i drank an entire pint of it uh the last time i was in san diego and it was like well i mean this beer i mean this beer is a really good version of what it's supposed to be Mm -hmm. but yeah i can't really i can't drink two pints of that beer (laughs) yeah i mean for me i have one pint of that beer and i I don't need any more beer yeah that that's i'm I'm done Yeah, it's like a, almost like a molasses or something. It's just a, like this is this is kind of a scary beer because you made you make something that's so like, of course I'll have another. It it went down so smoothly and so easily that it didn't feel like, wow, I just had a whole beer. It feels like yeah, we've just been chatting and stuff. Oh wow, that beer disappeared. Yeah, I'll have another one. And now yeah, we like that, making beer for drinking, <laughs> but not binge drinking. <laughs> just ha- consume as much as you're comfortable. Drink responsibly. Yeah. <laughs> But is that is that kind of a, if you got together with other breweries and be like, we made a beer that is not addictive, but just so drinkable that people leave going, I'm gonna have to Uber now. Damn it! I I wanted to just come and have one, and I had three or four, and I, I damn it. It's I mean, just too I good. think there there definitely is a reason why Lager took over the entire planet for a little while, mm-hmm. and people kind of forget that, and they kind of associate Lager with like big bad beer, mm-hmm. uh, but. Like I said, like these these lager styles when they're when they're done really well are they're they're really they're subtle but they have you know their their complexities and like uh, little details that are in there which you know all at the same time doesn't beat you up doesn't fill you up doesn't get you too drunk too quickly it just makes for a much a much nicer you know drinking experience than like say you know if you just drink IPA all the time you can go out and like have three of them in your trash and have to get an Uber home yeah. But also, just jump on the, like, I think within craft beer in general, um, subtlety is a thing that we've maybe moved away from. And I think we maybe have moved away from too much at this point. And we're starting to see a little pullback. Yeah. Um, I've gone to a few places where you see, like, melon this and infuse that and a little too, like, isn't there just something kind of... At the end of the day, we want beer. Mm -hmm. And if it's an infused or flavored, it should be beer with, insert something, not juice with a splash of beer mm-hmm. uh, and that's why lager is great it's a subtle product the, the nuance is there and I think all of our products really lend that to, to be that way there's a subtlety um, and delicate flavors that can be appreciated um, and they don't beat you over the head with it mm-hmm. do you feel like you know you guys see the trends happening when you're out and about but right here do you feel like there's a guessing game trying to stay in front of it, stay ahead of it a little bit? We're like, oh man, everyone's really into these citrus beers. All of a sudden, they all stop. Now everyone wants to come back to. I mean, not really. Um, we do some fun. We do fun stuff, um, you know, with with some regularity. But again, our main focus is like good, solid, like technically sound beer made for drinking. Um, you know, we're we we're not chasing gimmicks. We're not trying to you know really. You know, we have some some ideas for some gimmicks, some fun gimmick beers that we're going to do uh, in the future, like our cereal milk project. Kale um, <laughs> just did a fist pump. <laughs> Couldn't contain so the joy. Excited about cereal milk. <laughs> I, those two words together seems like self-explanatory, but not in the world of beer. Cereal milk. I don't get that. So it's kind of uh, the that, that oh, concept. Like the, so, like you know the the Momofuku like the, cereal bar milk cereal milk bar thing. Is, does this stem from um, Man vs Snake? Uh, no, there's uh, Momofuku is this crazy uh, crazy restaurant David Chang oh, okay. uh, thing, and they had a little offshoot where they had a bar where you could drink cereal infused milk. <laughs> so there's in Man vs Snake. To briefly summarize it, a guy set a record long ago at the game Nibbler, which is like the big snake that grows, and he vowed, if anyone ever beats it, I'll come back and beat it again. 
the documentary picks up where someone has beaten him and now he's like kind of in a, in a phase of life where he's, it's not the greatest. He went from being this hometown hero to like, he just works in a factory and he's like gotten pretty out of shape. And so he's gearing back up and he's buys a, a cabinet and he brings it to his house. And he's playing nonstop and friends and well-wishers come by and this dude just shows up and is watching I'm like, good luck, man. And he just turns to the camera and goes, Hey, don't you think it'd be a great idea if they had milk you could buy that just tasted like the cereal when you're done eating it? <laughs> That's like his only part in the whole document. So I thought maybe you guys are doing a little tip of the cap and a bummer to him that it already exists. But yeah, that's uh, kind of the, the the general concept that we've developed for that beer is you know they, we had a little bit of this uh, flash in the pan of like the golden stout thing. Oh, golden stout! I think I've seen that. So it's like once. a uh, like a pale beer with like coffee and chocolate oh, okay. and oats and things like that. And so it kind of like if you close your eyes, it like kind of smells and drinks like a nitro stout, but it's blonde. Mm-hmm. And so we you know we're gonna try to do that sort of a thing, but you know infusing like Cheerios into it or something. Cool. And lactose. Are you really? Oh yeah, lactose is usually a pretty common common thing in the in the in those So when you see milk stouts. stout, it's there's actual like lactose milk in sugar, it. Milk sugar, yeah. Whoa. So what what actually is a st- I guess we should get into maybe more beers or talking about specific. Uh, can I tap one thing off first though? When we're sure. talking about chasing the styles, I should say that our number one selling product in our brewery from day 1 has always been our lager. Mm-hmm. It outsells the next best-selling thing two to one. So clearly, customers—that's what customers want. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, they sample a lot of these other fun beers that we make, but they all come back to this—the tried and true, like clean, easy drink. Do you beer. find that with? I know, like Stone, their IPA was kind of like they—they they could hang their hat on that, and, and I don't think a lot of people revere Stone. Not to talk trash about any other breweries but it, it, it's it's gotten so big in like kind of a conglomerate sense that it's not maybe like the niche sort of hey let's go into this little brewery that no one knows about but i think people love going in and like here's their home run here's the thing they nailed first and let's try their other stuff too and i always find that's interesting how it kind of varies brewery to brewery just in my experience that like oh they, they do a really great brown ale they do a really good stout this is, you know, like the lager is that common or do you guys feel higher sense of pride with that well there's um you know the the ipa game has been Mm -hmm. really hot for a long time and there's so many people competing in that space yeah like it's we've kind of chosen to go a different route because not a whole lot of other people are are doing that everybody's kind of chasing um you know like extremism of like flavor Mm -hmm. you know trying to pack as much flavor and and intensity into a beer as possible Mm -hmm. and so this is how we you know wind up you know with our you know the craze of IPA, double IPA, triple IPA, and yeah. things beyond that. Um, and plus, honestly, like it's just kind of the beers that I want to drink anyway. It's like just regular good beer. What's the most fun to make, like jigsaw puzzle style? I went into a craft liquor beer store one time, and the they had a single can, and I don't even think it was like twenty ounces. It was like a sixteen ounce can for like nine dollars, and it was because it was dry hopped like a dry hopped double IPA with some other term in there where I was like that's just too much sparkle milkshake is that what it, it wasn't called that it was, but is that is that a term for doing that like making it too fancy or is that an actual beer uh, that's a kind of making fun of two two different trends of IPA uh, at the same time uh. <laughs> sparkle milkshake I think this is that this sort of plays into two things that I, have been happening within the beer industry over the last maybe four to five years which is the uh, winification and um, yeah. fetishization of beer. And that often uh, goes hand in hand with like scarcity equals quality and scarcity also nice. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Nice Foley work. <laughs> also equals a uh, higher price point. Um, yeah. So people are now. You know, Thank you sniffing and tasting and concern you know like really delving into the, into beer which is great it's, mm-hmm. it's it's an awesome thing that people are finally paying attention to beer yeah but there also comes like a certain level of snootiness with that yeah. and elevated price point and one of the things that i personally love about beer is that it doesn't it shouldn't be you know 40 50 100 dollars a bottle it's meant to be a, a, a drink you can consume every day um and it's food it's, yeah uh, and so when I see these, you know, 12 ounce 
cans of an IPA that's ten, twelve dollars just it, it feels like it's going against what beer is supposed to stand for, at least for me. It's funny to hear from the, you know, you're trying to make a lucrative business. So theoretically, you should be on the other side of that argument. Just that, oh, good. The price of beer is going up as if it were publicly traded. You could say, great, like our stockholders are going to be happy. We are making more money. But I, as far as ideology, I completely agree. It bugs me. I don't like that. Because in Spain, wine was like the drink of the people. It was supposed to be like, hey, it was we grapes made a bunch of popping out everywhere. Yeah, you know, just like you know, turn into raisins or or rot if it didn't get turned into wine. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that's happening that's different now is that people aren't buying, you know, cases and cases of this nine dollar beer. They buy one or two, and then they try a different brand and a different brand. And the way that breweries can capitalize on that is being small and nimble. Mm-hmm. But you can never make anything in mass. You can never make a lot of the same thing over and over again because people are just chasing these little one-offs. Yeah, um, it's a great business model for smaller breweries, um, taproom breweries, mm-hmm. but it's incredibly difficult and challenging for larger manufacturing breweries, and damn near impossible for the big big guys. Well, that's what I, th- I was going to ask you guys next. Maybe is about the big big guys where they have a vendetta. It seems like against you know that you see these commercials now. Like it's or the the most common one right now is the Bud Light one. Can I have a mead? Is it autumnal? Is it this? Is it like the guy's too needy? <laughs> Shut up and drink your Bud Light. It gets put in a rack, and yet then Anheuser Busch or all these sort of InBev companies will come out with like. They're the closest thing they can do to change up their brand just a little bit. Like, it's a centennial lager, spicier. Just trying to do little things that change it. Because I think for so long, they could bank on, like, I'm a gentleman that I work a hard job, and I come home, and I grab a case of this same beer every day or every week or whatever, and that's all I drink. And they could lean on that. And now maybe that guy's even going, well, I'll try one of these. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff is coming out, like, you know, six seven eight percent and so i was like oh i can get drunk quicker <laughs> so that's but, yeah i mean a lot of these a lot of these crazy styles um they also present some other some other problems uh too you know these especially the uh you know the hazy hazy ipa mm-hmm. um i like those well they are they're they are nice beers and there's actually some really interesting science about why they taste the way that they taste that i'll spare you from right now <laughs> Uh, but you know, I'd with like that extra, to dip back toward it maybe later. Uh, with that extra, with that extra flavors and stuff, and just the amount of material uh, that's left in the beer mm-hmm. um, makes shelf stability a real issue for those. So oh, really? If you can get them and drink them fresh, that's great. But you know, if you go to your your local you know warm stored liquor store or your you know trading with beers with strangers on the internet like you probably shouldn't be doing anyway <laughs> um you know you never know what you're going to get um and those you know and a lot of times people pay a lot of money for some of these beers and they get just old shitty beer and be like oh man this is awesome and then it uh it really kind of does a disservice to the whole industry i think because people get either you know used to bad beer or mm-hmm. uh get turned off by it we watched, uh, or I watched uh, an episode of this um, salt, acid, fat, heat thing yeah. on Netflix. And like the first one, you know, she makes, uh, or she goes and they like, crush the olives and like, make olive oil. And the thing that was so fascinating about that is like, it's the best when it's fresh. And people will, like get it as a wedding gift and just dose it out over 20 years. And like, it's just bad. Use it's it, rancid. Yeah. You got to use it. It's made to be used. I, I got really into bamboo uh, fly fishing rods and all these, every company that makes them would be like, are people, any client customer gets it and goes, I'm going to hang this on the wall. And they go, no, it's beautiful and use it and use it. And it's so going back to that thing with beer being this cherished thing of, Oh, look, I, I'm one of 10 people that got this bottle. It bugs me. It, drink also, it. We've been really conditioned uh, by big beer to think that beer is, you know, just this thing you can throw on the shelf and it doesn't go bad and you just drink it. And that's how it tastes. Mm-hmm. That's, and you know, that's why we have so much, you know, warm store beer and why people, them, you know, the average customer probably doesn't think a whole lot about like how old their beer was, like how it was, you know, how it's stored in the store. And, you know, was it, you know, how it was stored before it got there? Yeah. You know, the whole like cold supply chain, which even for a small company like us has been a big, has been a big challenge. Yeah. That how do you, you know, manage your overhead and not have stuff kind of 
backed up here. We're suddenly like, damn, we got to pour out. You have to pour out stuff. That's just what it yeah, we, uh, to. Yeah, we just, um, we dropped uh, our uh, distributor that we've been working with and we got all the stuff back from their inventory and boy, there were some surprises that we saw in there. Yeah, but what, I mean, and you can't flood the market. You can't, hey, we're doing a giveaway. Everyone come drink no, free beer. No, plus we wouldn't even want to. It defeats the whole purpose. You know, what we want is we want to put pristine, awesome, perfect beer in front of every person every single time. You mm-hmm. know, the fact that we have extra beer that's like you know not exactly what we want that's not that bad like you know that's not what we want to you know be the way we want to present the brands and what you know we want that consistent experience of excellent quality all the time every time so no b pluses would an a minus potentially slip through every now and again oh yeah i mean you know there there's you know we have we have windows um and you know uh, tolerances and targets and and things like that, uh, mm-hmm. and so we do have to make some of those decisions. Like, you know, it might be you know not perfectly on target, but you know it's within an acceptable range. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, things like you know we can just sit down and taste it and huddle and be like. Usually it's me being like, guys, don't please. <laughs> <laughs> and how hard is that for you? Like, have you? Do you now feel like? And I would imagine you're still very critical and like. But, you know, you're, you're friends. So do you go, don't be so hard on yourself, Josiah. This is good. Me and Josiah have um, mutual and yet differing um, viewpoints within the company. Like, his, his pull is quality at the finest. If it were up to him, I'd say beer shouldn't be more than... 10 days, 30 days old, fresh, perfect, oh, awesome product. That bad. <laughs> <laughs> and then you got to sort of balance that with like, hey, there's business requirements of like, I know this beer is, it's it's a B plus, it's an A minus, but I have an account that wants it that's had our beer on for a really long time. And if we don't give it to them, I'm not going to get that handle anymore. So mm-hmm. it's a constant business balancing act of like the per- perfect situation versus the real world of making beer move around mm-hmm. yeah i mean we keep the tolerances around here pretty tight just because i mean that's that's how it should be um but you know uh, the, the 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 average consumer again it might you know they don't have the technical uh tasting ability like you know like somebody like me does that is whose job is it is to freak out about how the beer's not tasting right yeah um <laughs> <laughs> So that's you know I have to just kind of keep remembering that, but you know that's that's the way we that we that we try to shoot for and try to try to execute the beer program. Nice. Um, a, I'm going to use that as a segue. So here we're switching yeah, switching beers now. That that Foley work we heard a while ago, the snap open of a new beer, the Liquid Gold. A little, a little foam foam topper there. Oh okay. And, so and, this is um this is our flagship lager. This is the our number one beer. Um, this foam gives us a little more bouquet. Yeah, a little bouquet, and you can kind of um, see the texture a little bit, very fine bubble texture. Um, oh, man, that's good. So this is um, uh, Iron Triangle Lager. Um, stylistically, we, we like to call it a pre-prohibition style uh, American Pilsner. So it's um, it's got a, uh, a two-row base with... Um, what does that mean, two-row? Uh, two-row um, is, is the main variety of, uh, of barley malt that's used uh, in brewing. Um, it's basically, it's what every, almost everything that goes into beer is going to be two row malt, unless you're a big mega, mega brewery, then you might use something like six row. Okay. Uh, which funny enough is we do use some six row in this beer for old, old timiness. Um, the main difference between two row and six row is that, um, Two row tastes a lot better than six row does. <laughs> uh, so why add in the six but row? Six row bring, let's also, bring it down a bit. Um, six row also has a much higher protein and enzyme content, which makes it uh, a lot better at converting adjunct uh, things that do not have their own enzymes. Things like corn, which is another thing that we have in this beer. Mm-hmm. So this is a very uh, kind of historical reinterpretation of the way that. The old time uh, American corn adjunct pilsner was was being brewed, and so we don't have to use the six row, but we do anyway, just for that little bit of kind of historical authenticity. Cool. So you can because of the corn, you can authentically say pre-prohibition style. Is that what does it? The six row. The six, row? Is the the six, six row. row is what brings okay. it to the pre-prohibition uh, era. It has such an interesting smell. And then, um, so yeah, it's a very very you know, it's about. Uh, Eight or nine percent corn, about the same amount of six row, and the rest is just uh, is just two row. Um, and then in the kettle, um, we have a small bittering charge. And then we finish with a really nice blend of um, 
German German Hallertal Middle Fru and uh, Czechsat uh, hops. And so it has this really, really nice kind of noble hop spice, a little bit of like floral floralness to it, mm-hmm. especially when it's fresh and very hoppy. Um, that comes through a lot. But even as this beer ages, um, you know, the hops will die down a little bit and it's just kind of turns into uh, a little bit more kind of subdued and just a little bit more like just less hoppy, more generally beer flavored. <laughs> It'd be the simplest way to explain it. The, um, the, the technicality, the chemistry involved in it. And we were walking in here and just the big vats that you go from working at a, in a homebrew, small little worts and things like that. Even if you're like, have the propane burners in the pit, it's still, ah, I can put this away in my garage. And you come here and I said like, this is sort of the closest I'll ever get to that Walter White laboratory in Breaking Bad. It's just very like, <laughs> Austere like and pristine. Tall tank of blue mess about to explode. <laughs> <laughs> but was it intimidating to see that? And then the process is it? You know, you're, you're still battling bacteria constantly. You're still trying to keep it as clean as possible to brew this beer and to really nail it. Like when you mentioned the finishing, like you get from your wort that is just enormously bigger now. Managing the temperature, managing the air, the water. When you add your sugars, was that intimidating? And how do you like? tackle that every time yeah i would say the um you know i've kind of gone on this sort of crazy trajectory my fate my first my first professional brewing gig i was brewing on a 50 50 gallon system uh and that was scary mm-hmm. moving up from 10 gallons to that i thought that was scary yeah um and then from there i moved up to a seven barrel system i thought that was scary and then from the seven barrel system i moved up to a 30 barrel system i thought that was really scary <laughs> so was it was it uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it's a nice, like, it's, you, you know, just stepped like, all the way just, up. Oh man, if I make a mistake, you know, this is a thousand gallons of beer that could be, could be in jeopardy, which, you know, if it's five gallons, you know, you have your emotional investment of time and about, you know, 20 or 30 bucks in materials. But, you know, when we're talking 30 or 60 barrels, it, you know, it, it, it can keep you up at night. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I believe it. And how do, how do we, how, you know, when people are baking, they go, we doubled the recipe. And you're like, you forgot this. This element is actually only you know seven eighths of it you know you know double it oh shoot i forgot the the break is that the same yeah that's big that's definitely a big thing in brewing and the way that the vessels work and the way that they utilize ingredients is huge depending on the size they are the geometry um like and especially like stepping from one brewery to another you can't just like scale things up you know it's every every brewery is it is its own animal really Mm -hmm. it has to you know you have to really you know recalibrate all your spreadsheets, if you if you if you have spreadsheets. I mean, when you, when you do your spreadsheets and you you have a team, you have assistants, you have people that are you know wearing gloves and boots, and you I mean you're dressed like workers. It's heavy labor, like manual. It's hard. Labor. It's hard manual labor that is dirty and you know to the most we can minimize it dangerous. Um, you know we're dealing with hot hot liquids, pressurized liquids. Um, chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's a much higher risk work environment. Um, you know, we have, we have procedures and practices that are, that are in place to help us, help us mitigate that. But, you know, it's, it's not easy. Um, I believe you know, it's it. not like, you know, you know, mashing in, in your driveway and flip flops for sure. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you got, I mean, when you send the word to everybody like, Hey, grab that bucket, pour it in, here we go. Your spreadsheets have to be right. The timing of everything has to be right. And you, it's not like you, like you say, you don't get to get a thousand gallons. Go, damn, mess this one up, pour it out. Let's start over. Yeah, um, yeah. It's really, you know, it's you gotta, you you can't really make big mistakes because the consequences suck mm-hmm. a lot. <laughs> so being in LA, how do you manage the water? Is that a big problem? To that is, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so even coming out of my homebrew days, um, you know, that one of the biggest things that I got, you know, I, you know, I'd really, you know, got my, got my, my big fancy brew system, like dialed in, like that was all going really well, but my beers still weren't coming out like how I was tasting you know, commercial beers. And I was like, what is going on? I've done everything I know how to do, everything the books say. And it all came down to water chemistry. And that, I think, is the biggest, uh, you know, last thing that comes into people's minds mm-hmm. uh, to make really good beer. But I definitely think it should be the first one because it's, you know, it's 95% of what's in the beer. And it's essentially, you know, the, the mineral content the ion content of the water that you're that you're using to make beer is like how you control the seasoning like on a steak you know mm-hmm. if you have a you have a really nice steak 
with no salt, it's definitely not going to be as awesome as if it had just that little bit of salt or that little bit of pepper mm-hmm. just to make things pop the way you want them to. So um, the main challenge that we face here in Los Angeles is that our supply is so highly blended from many different sources. And so we can get pretty wild variations in the content, the mineral content of our water um, from you know week to week or sometimes even day to day. It can be pretty, pretty random depending on what's going on. Um, so what we do now is, uh, you know, since I, since I came in, we've, uh, we've installed uh, this big fat reverse osmosis system. And so we... Was this a demand? Where Kale was just looking at the numbers like, you son of a bitch. That's uh, kind of a, a funny story that we can talk about later, how this piece of equipment actually <laughs> landed in here. But uh, yeah, I, w- I, I would I, say this was a demand. It was a demand. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, um, you know, we'll take, uh, I'll take the water, we strip uh, everything out of it. And then we'll blend a little bit of source water back in just so we don't have to augment so much. But we get this really nice, uh, neutral, very, very pure, clean base that we can then uh, take and then augment for each individual beer that we brew. So we have a specific water profile for every beer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for home brewers and even for, you know, a lot of like smaller, newer uh, commercial brewers, that's like often um, the area that you can get the biggest, the biggest gains from is improving, you know, the way that you approach water treatment. What's neutral pH seven? A neutral pH is seven. Um, pH is not really a relevant thing when you're looking at like raw water for for oh, okay. for, for beer brewing. Really, I thought you were getting into saying that you you know for this one we go seven point one and for this one we bring it down to six point eight. Well, we have uh, we have pH parameters for um, you know for mash you know all the way through the end of fermentation, but like before the water hits the grain, the thing that we're really looking at are you know are you know things like calcium, sulfate, chloride, uh, alkalinity. Stuff like that. So you get a um, whole profile built out and like, yeah. Whoa! It, this is like Breaking Bad. It, it, yeah, there's uh, definitely some 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 mad scientist element to it for sure. Cool. And then if you had a perfect beer to brew, like one that you just, well, first I want to like going back to the coveralls, which I just love that it is. It's such like it's honest work. A buddy of mine is a screen printer, and so I feel like that is very, you know, the probably draws it, you got to ink it in, you got to then build, you know, through um, photo emulsion, build your screens, and then start pulling ink through them. The whole thing is very hand done. Hand, every image you see, it's like, man, that was just so much work, every layer of it, and yet he'll be like, I'll drink any beer. And I go, how can you do that? And he goes, and it, I think it just roots in, I don't know if it was big beer or these kind of Midwestern roots that are... It's just too snobby. It's too snobby to like, oh, what's this one? Uh, this, I, I'm too good for this kind of beer. And so is that a big beer thing? How do you combat that? Because I would imagine people listening to this go, I want this beer. I want beer that's made out of care as opposed to mass produced in such an enormous way where the alcohol content's constantly going down. Yeah, that's, and- um, you know, that's the thing that I really hope that people will start paying attention to more, uh, especially now that we have you know the you know, this big uh, thing of, you know, uh, large, large brewery conglomerates uh, acquiring craft brewers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they, they were smart enough to figure out that they weren't really good at the whole craft beer thing for whatever reason. They have every smartest scientist in the planet working for them, but they can't figure out how to make beer that people like still. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, so at least that, you know, so that's what we got going for us now. But, you know, our... Um, the argument for, you know, to justify the existence of the craft brewing scene was, you know, it was always had been quality. You mm-hmm. know, we make beer that's better than shitty lager that you yeah. can get, you know, for X amount of dollars for a 30 rack. Yeah. You know, that, 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 that's been the argument for a long time. But now that they've acquired these, these breweries and they're making beers in these styles and they're, and they're good. So we've kind of lost the ground of being able to argue about quality of beer because they have that now. Yeah. Now what it comes down to is caring about who you give your money to and, you know, do you want to give your money to a company that's just going to, you know, send it all off to Belgium or do you want to give it to a company that's going to keep all that money here and pay people that work in your own town? Yeah. And how compete? Because they trick you a little bit. You go and you see like craft beer and you go, ooh, this one's out of, I don't want to say a, I feel like even if I said a city name, people are like, I know what you're talking about. But if, if you saw that and you like, how do you research yeah, I mean, But there's, it? you know, the things like, you know, like Boulevard still makes great beer um, as like, I'll, we can just take that as an example, but you know, they're owned by Budweiser now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, 
The big what's one. The, like, what's the big? What's the big fat beer that they're famous for? The stout. Boulevard. Boulevard yeah. wheat. I thought was their kind of big. Yeah. Don't they, they do the Kentucky breakfast or? Is the, That's uh, Founders. Oh, Founders. Never mind. I'm thinking of something else. But. Anyway, they got some, uh, oh, Goose Island. I think that's another one, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pretty damn good beer for airport beer. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's, there's no real problems with it. But, you know, if you're going to go out and buy something off the shelf, would you rather, you know, have have the presence of mind to think about where you're spending your money and who you like and where it's going to go? Especially is it locally. Is going to stay in the community? Or yeah. Is it gonna, are you just feeding, you know, multinational conglomerate that's going to pay off shareholders? And how does, I mean, how does that factor in with you guys? You get an offer, you know, here like uh, breweries selling for like a billion dollars. We're accepting all multi-billion dollar offers at this point right now. Just want to put that out there to anybody that might be listening with a billion dollars and wants to give it to us. (laughs) The truth of the matter is everybody has these lofty, noble goals of like providing beer and jobs for their community and and that's exactly what we do. But we're all here to make money and if somebody would walk in and write a really big paycheck – there's not a person out there who wouldn't take it. And, mm-hmm. and frankly, they should. Like, yeah. that's the American dream. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Weirdly, I just read this article the other day that the, the term the American dream was kind of co-opted roughly 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it used to be, it meant like all these lofty... <laughs> no, it wasn't reparations. <laughs> it, was, it was more like equality and democracy. The idea that a nation could flourish with those things, like prosperity, equality, and democracy. People would go, ah, you know, like, ah, we're still working for that. And the American dream is, you know, like the idea that the dream was America as a nation. And I think it's so fun. Not a person alive would associate it with anything other than like, make as much money as you can. Hopefully you came up by your bootstraps, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, we're going into another one. We got another beer. I wanted to, before we finish talking about the um, the gold lager. The, oh, the yeah, the iron uh, triangle lager. Yeah, liquid very... gold. Gorgeous. But the smell. I've never really smelled a beer. And maybe it's just because we're in these cool snifters, but getting my snout right in there. It's so cool. I've never really smelled a beer that, right when you, you're like, what is that? I don't think you'd know right away. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's the, that's. One of the nice things about, um, you know, working in the realm of subtlety, you know, if, uh, you know, if we put in, you know, five pounds per barrel of these same hops, it would be really crazy and intense. But when you have nuance, mm-hmm. that's kind of what draws you into the beer, I yeah. feel like, and makes you kind of keep drinking it and kind of sussing out the little the little subtleties mm-hmm. which i think makes is a much more pleasurable drinking experience than just getting smacked across the face <laughs> it's it's kind of like um like maybe a painting or something that you could you quickly take it in you're like oh that's a painting of this landscape or whatever but then the more you look at it you're like oh there's a lot of things going on there's stuff in the background there's yeah like, oh it's obviously a boat <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's <laughs> You can appreciate it at a glance, and it's great, and mm-hmm. you can appreciate it. Kaboom! Number three. <laughs> uh, with a fine-tooth comb as well. I was going to say, it's funny you mentioned, like, you don't recognize it right away. The first sip I had of that, of the liquid gold, it almost went in in a watery way. I don't mean that, like, oh, I didn't taste anything. It didn't blast me. And then it was almost like that, like, bubbles kind of releasing, and all of a sudden it was a million flavors at every part of my mouth where I was like, Ooh, this is interesting. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And that's, um, that's definitely kind of how I feel you get drawn, drawn deeper into, into thinking about a beer too. Just not making it easy to drink. So it doesn't like push you over, mm-hmm. beat you up. Um, so it's, it, yeah, I just like, I like, and it's the way that I like to drink beer. So that's the way <laughs> we're making. <laughs> Do you start to, you know, artists have people, they like film and television, you have directors that you're like, oh, I just kind of trust whatever they make. Even if it's a film I don't love, find myself days later kind of thinking about it, or I like what the DP did and the way they shot it, et cetera. Do you have brewers, you know, that you, or, or breweries that you go to where you're like, I want to see what they did with this. They did a wit or they did a some sort of double hopped thing or whatever it might be where you're like, yeah, I like that. I like where they go. And does that stem more from their really minutia focused detail in the chemistry or is it just like, they're just wild. They do stuff people wouldn't think works. Yeah. I would say probably my favorite uh, brewery that I would go and drink at every day if it was closer uh, would be Ennegrin Brewing Company in Moorpark. 
Uh, immigrant? En- Ennegrin. Ennegrin, okay. It's, uh, yeah, it's their uh, two brothers. That's their last name. Ennegrin, okay. Um, and that's, you know, they have, they have this this laser focus on German lagers and German styles of beer. And so they, you know, you know uh, I was just at the brewery uh, maybe a week ago, and they had probably, I think they had three different kinds of Pilsner on tap, which mm-hmm. is kind of weird. Yeah. Usually, uh, but they were all completely different beers, all really enjoyable. They do a lot of weird stuff. Um, they make uh, like they had a smoked Hellas, which was really really interesting. Um, but yeah, they do a lot of the the, the more esoteric um, German German styles of of lager and a little bit of ale. And they you know they make some IPA too because everybody's got to. Mm-hmm. Um, Does that feel like that dirty sort of like you gotta? I mean, you know, people, you know, it's it's getting giving people what they want. Come on, answer you know, the question. I love a, I love a good IPA myself. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I can't drink a, a, as much of it as I could, like you know, a nice a nice you know four point eight percent lager. You mm-hmm. know, but I still definitely enjoy like a good you know six or seven percent IPA um, mm-hmm. for sure, and especially when they're when they're done when they're done right, they're very very tasty. Yeah. Okay. So, but it's not your favorite beer to brew. And why is it the taste that like the, what comes out of it? Or is it the process that you don't love? It's the process mostly. Um, you know, it's a very, um, loss. uh, There's a lot of loss in it just from, you know, the amount of hot material that goes in. It's very inefficient, but it's highly flavorful and people love it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love it. You know, I would say like maybe 75% and I'd I'd have to look back on this, but when I ask people when they're going to do the podcast, like, do you have any particular type of beer? And IPA is like I said, like 70, 75% of the Everybody's time. Everybody's got one. You got to have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, fun, the the last time I was at Monkish uh, was a long time ago when they still had the no IPA sign in their, <laughs> in their tap room. <laughs> so I got to get back over there. And <laughs> How times have changed. Yeah. <laughs> they mean it knowing like, uh, get out of here. Where you, you, you trendy hip types, get out of here. Yeah, it was like, because at that time they were, you know, we're going to do Belgian style stuff. You know, forget about that, all this IPA nonsense. We're going to stick to what we like. And they're like, oh, money. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, this is great. Is this, so a, this, is, uh, um, this is our dark lager. Oh, nice. I had a, a black lager recently and it vaulted way up in the type of beers that I suddenly realized I love. Again, it's a very, uh, it's uh, not a very commonly done style, uh, in, in the craft beer community. I look for it. Ever, they're, um, American pale ales. I, f- I like more than IPAs and, uh, brown ales, porters and dark lagers to me are all kind of in this same sort of like, I could just drink those endlessly and they're hard, the, the hardest to find. Yeah, um, you know, we we've kind of taken this beer on on a on a ride of development, and it's almost done. Um, but yeah, having that having those nice dark flavors, you know, of like you know a little bit of coffee, a little bit of chocolate, like in a lager type presentation where it's light, crisp, not filling, um, you know, versus like something that could be a little bit more readily available, like porter or stout. They tend to be much. Um, you know, held, uh, heavier yeah. and, uh, just a lot more, you know, intense in overall flavor impression. Um, so we're trying to, you know, kind of get that dark beer person while still having like kind of this refreshingly dark drinking experience that kind of, you know, is along the same lines as the regular lager where, you know, it's, it's got, it's got nuance to it. It's got, you know, subtle detail. Um, and, Hopefully it hopefully it draws you draws you in and you know you get that you get that second or third pint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is my absolute favorite beer to take to beer festivals because mm-hmm. uh, people will come up and ask what's what's the lightest thing you got and I make them try this beer first <laughs> and they look at me with like weird you know sort of queer eye look and like what what are you thinking about and almost everyone who tries it goes wow that is not what i was expecting Mm -hmm. uh we've turned a lot of people into dark beer fans that wouldn't have otherwise been this way yeah um and this is my favorite beer that we make um and dark lager is definitely my favorite beer style like that's my desert island like one they're gonna airdrop you one pallet of beer (laughs) every month nobody's asking why they didn't just pick you up but just (laughs) dropping this beer and this is the one i would have yeah i like it I mean, I feel like what you were saying about the... Well, I have more questions about the differentiation between kind of like a stout and then dark. That Those seem to swim in sort of the same waters. But I think of... 
the stout being, or, you know, the beer itself being kind of this vehicle, the flavors involved, maybe the passengers and always like, I like the passengers in a stout where it's kind of coffee and chocolate and these darker, but I'm always like, this is just so heavy. Like, I feel like I'm having a milkshake and this is kind of all the great passenger elements, but really light. And it's, I love it. Yeah. I think, um, you know, those, you know, it's again, like, people they tend when they make those dark beer styles just to go wild and try to make you know something very uh intense mm-hmm. and highly flavorful which you know there's definitely definitely a, a place for that but you know that's again we're going for that for that you know i want to sit down and drink like you know three or three or four of these over over the course of the night and you're you know you don't get too drunk or too full and or too overwhelmed with any 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 flavor just good solid drinking drinking beer yeah so going to like the you know if i had a blindfold on and it was try this try this and then like this one this dark lager right next to a porter right next to a a a milk stout say or coffee stout i'd be like these are remarkably similar and i there's no part of me that feels confident that i could know lager different than stout so is it more in like the brewing process or what? I mean, it's really them? really subtle. Um, you know, the lager yeast, um, when it's done right, is very nice and and clean, um, which you can get very very close to that with um, uh, ale fermentations. But there will always be like an extra little element of fruity ester. Um, uh, fruity ester. Yeah. So uh, the esters are a group of uh, flavor active compounds that are excreted by yeast during fermentation uh, to varying degrees. Um, based on how you control the fermentation, usually mm-hmm. temperatures is the is the main one, but there's a lot of other ones as well. Um, and so you can get um, a much kind of cleaner profile with a lager fermentation uh, that allows the the again those very subtle components of the other ingredients that you select to go into it to you know be able to take the main stage. Okay, I think I understand that. I don't know if I could regurgitate also, that. To and also, like- it's um. Uh, now, they tend to be a little bit drier, um, which I also am a huge fan of dry beer. I love dry beer. Um, really? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm not a big. I'm not. A, I don't have a big sweet tooth at all. Mm-hmm. Like I almost, you know, never eat desserts or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I love. I love dry beer. Cool. Well, we're we're just about at an hour, which I know is kind of our allotted time. So I don't want to take you guys up on that, but I'd love we to try to, more beer. We got so. uh, we got a couple more beers to get. Okay, through, great. So okay, yeah. cool. It's been fun, guys. Josiah is going to take you from here. <laughs> okay, great. Well, Kale, thank you so much, man. This was continued success. I love this place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to kind of cut it off mid-chat there, but um, Kale had to go. I thought that'd be a good place to break it up. So come back for next week. This is just me and Josiah, and we get into a lot more beer and a lot more chatting about how to make beer and all of that stuff. Thanks to Dan for putting this show together. Thanks to you for listening. And especially if you uh, contribute to the Patreon. This show has no ads. Ideally, it'll stay that way for the duration of the show. And it is made possible by contributions by listeners just like you. So thanks for doing that. It really makes a huge difference with beer and recording equipment and music and hosting and tech stuff and on and on. So thanks to those of you who do that. And you can start a David Huntsberger Pandora channel if you want to hear some of my stand-up from over the years. And uh, you can buy CDs at davidhuntsberger.com. You can get screen-printed Space Cave Paraphernalia at thespacecave.com. You can also email pings at thespacecave.com there if you have beer or guest or topic suggestions or anything else. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the show. You can rate it if you want. You don't have to. I know you don't want to be part of the beast, have it tracking uh, what you like and don't like. But if you want to, it helps the show, helps to, to get more cool guests like Kale and Josiah. So come back next week and hear more of that from an actual brewmaster and uh here's some music from Haley bonner hope you like it thanks for stopping by the space cave